Good morning. We're going to be reading from Romans, like he said. Romans 13, or 14, 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For your brother is grieved by what you eat. You are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace for mutual and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whoever does not produce from faith, or for whatever does not produce from faith, is sin. This is the very word of God. The title of my sermon today comes from those infamous words spoken by Cain when God asked him, Where is Abel your brother? The attempt by Cain to cover his hideous sin with the response, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Does raise an important question that we need to answer. The first Part of Romans 14 emphasized that we are not to pass judgment on one another. But this certainly does not mean that we are simply to stay out of each other's business. The burden of the rest of the chapter is to help us see the other side, the extent to which we are, in fact, responsible for one another. We must come now to this question as to what extent we are our brother's or sister's keeper. For we certainly should all agree that we must not be our brother's killer. Romans 14 teaches us about the glorious realities of Christian liberty, but it does so in order to help us see that Christian liberty serves the even greater glories of a loving community in which God's work will grow and mature. So as we examine these verses together this morning, let's consider again our duty to one another, the power that we've been given to fulfill our duty, and then the way in which we can go about this business of being our brother's keeper, our duty to one another, the power to fulfill the duty, and then the way in which we can fulfill that duty. So let's begin by considering the duty that we have 
to one another. I hope you're listening carefully this morning if you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Because as we've seen throughout the book of Romans, the gospel message, uh, which we could summarize and, and say in different ways, but one that we've seen repeated time and time again, the gospel message is that in Jesus... The long-awaited kingdom of God has come. Since we who trust in Christ are therefore fellow citizens of the kingdom of God, we must, Romans 14.1 says, welcome one another into Christian fellowship. We should exclude no one that God has accepted into such communion. We saw that last week, but this week I want us to think about the fact that our duty to one another goes even further than that. In verse 13, you find a summary statement of the first 12 verses. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. Now, to pass judgment was the particular temptation of the weak as uh, over against the strong. We looked at that last week. But the word that is used here, do not pass judgment, is, is more broadly applied to everyone, both the strong and the weak. And Paul uses this word, do not pass judgment on one another, because he wants to now create a rhetorical connection to what our passage today is all about. Uh, most of our English versions do not show this, it's obvious in the Greek text, because the next part of Romans 14, 13 begins, but rather decide. And that verb there is the same verb that's used in the first part of the verse where it's translated past judgment. Our duty to one another then is not merely don't judge one another. We are instead to make this judgment this commitment, this determination. We will do everything that we can to ensure that we do not put what he calls a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So as we get started this morning, I simply want to see, I want us to see the concern, the determination that all of us need to have for one another. It's not enough simply to say, I'm not going to judge anyone. Christian liberty. Our goal as Christians is not merely to leave one another alone. We are to see to it that we are keeping the pathway clear. So it's not enough to simply commit ourselves or content ourselves to just keeping to our own business. Of course, we must not judge one another, but at the same time, we must judge this, that we are going to help one another. Now, the appeal of these verses is not to our common humanity. The concern is not simply that it's just the right thing to do to help someone that you see who is in need. I have no doubt that every one of us in here today If you come across someone who has an obvious need, you're going to see what you can do to resolve it, which is great. 
But you don't have to be a Christian to do that. That's pretty basic, praise God, to common grace that most human beings see as something instinctive, something that we ought to do. What Paul's talking about here, the Christian obligation is much more serious than that. So let me try to say it plainly. If you claim to be a Christian, I'm assuming that's most of us, if not all of us. If you claim to be a Christian, listen, you cannot separate yourself from your duty to your brother or sister in Christ. You see, commentators will point out that the resolve never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother is simply Paul's reflection on what Jesus himself taught. It's not just another way of saying, do not judge one another. The word translated hindrance in verse 13 is the Greek word skandalon. I'm always telling you that because Jesus uses the verb form of that word in Mark 9.42 when he said this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, skandalizo, it would be better for him, here's what Jesus says, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow. That is pretty serious. If we hinder one another in our Christian discipleship, it is such a great offense. Are you listening? That Jesus says a speedy drowning would be better than for you to face the judgment you would deserve for such a sin. So, it's important for us then to see the particular danger that is in view here and that this particular danger comes precisely in this area of what we call Christian liberty. Verse 14 puts it straightforwardly. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Paul had come to learn that no material object, nothing that God had himself created was objectively immoral and therefore off-limits for God's people. Now that may not sound revolutionary to you because you're a Gentile. But if you are a faithful Jew like Paul himself was, this is an extraordinary conclusion to reach. Because if you're a faithful Jew, you know your Old Testament. To say that there is nothing in unclean is to violate, to go against Old Testament law. All you have to do, by the way, to see how difficult this was to accept, is just read in your New Testament. Read in the book of Acts. When you get to especially Acts chapter 10, you're going to see how difficult this was for even Jesus' own disciples to come to terms with. The apostle Peter had to wrestle with it. It took a vision from God with a sheet 
and all kinds of animals and God himself saying, eat that pork to begin to work this into the heart of a faithful Jew. And yet this was the clear teaching of Jesus himself, even when he was here, as demonstrated in Mark 7. Let me give you two verses. Mark seven fifteen. This is Jesus' words. Here's what he says. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. You're a faithful Jew. You're supposed to go, what? What? Four verses later, Mark gives his own commentary on what Jesus says just to make sure that we get it. He said this, thereby or thus, he declared, God, or Jesus declared all foods clean. Again, you're like, all right, whatever. No, th- this is a big deal, a huge deal. But at the same time, look what Paul says in verse 14. He affirms the teachings of Jesus. These Old Testament regulations about diet are no longer applicable to God's people. And all of us who love bacon rejoice. But look what he says. At the same time, it might be unclean. For anyone who thinks it is unclean, it is unclean. So what this means then becomes plain, at least on the surface. Although you and I may truly have liberty in Christ to do this or to do that, such liberty must never be exercised without consideration of our duty to one another. How it affects our Christian brother or sister. To do so, to be careless about this, to ignore this, to not take Romans 14 seriously would be in itself a horrific sin, as Jesus explained. So here's the upshot of what we're seeing so far. As precious as Christian liberty is, and by the way, it is an exceedingly precious doctrine. It is not more important than Christian love. It is not more important than the Christian community. And the reason for that is straightforward. But we need to hear this. We need to hear this. Christianity is not a private religion. It is communal at its core. To be a Christian is not simply to have your own personal faith in and relationship with Jesus. There is a personal dimension to our faith, to be sure. But to be a Christian is, at its core, to be a member of his family with numerous brothers and sisters in the family with you. And we need this family to help each other to live as Christians. And what I mean by that is what Paul means, to learn to live in the realities of the kingdom of God, to learn what it means to live as a citizen of God's kingdom that has already been inaugurated, launched into this present world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So more than my Christian liberty, 
I must love my Christian family and commit to doing whatever I can to see that every single one of my brothers and sisters grows up in the faith. Now, I want to speak to us candidly here this morning. You are, of course, right. You're a member of Crosstown. You are, of course, right to expect that church officers, pastors, ministers here will take this to heart, will care for the church and help us grow up into Christ. But do you see, do you see that there is no way that you can possibly conclude that that duty belongs to the church ministers and pastors alone? Do you see that? You cannot excuse yourself of your duty to your family, to your Christian family, by simply declaring that you are weak in the faith and that you are unable to help your stronger brother or sister. Excuses like that simply misses the point of what it means to be a Christian. If you claim to be a follower of Christ, you have a duty to your family, to your Christian family, to your brothers and sisters, to do everything you can to help them to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. Okay, now, I hope that wasn't hard to persuade you to that. But here's the thing. Once you've concluded that, once you say, okay, amen, yes, this is my responsibility. Once you conclude that, we're going to have to dig in a little bit more here and discern how do we go about, how do we go about fulfilling that? What, what, what power do we have to help one another? This is, it's kind of a burden, right, to know that you don't get to just mind your own business. You have a responsibility to your Christian brothers and sisters. So how, how, do, we, how do we do this? What's the power we've been given? And, and an important point needs to be made here. The tension that may exist between Christian liberty and Christian love or Christian community does not come because these two truths are contradictory. Let me first of all be clear about what we mean when we talk about Christian liberty. Christian liberty is one of the many fruits that results from our justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It is the Christian's liberation from the guilt of sin and the condemning wrath of God. So every Sunday when one of the pastors stands up here, we just did it a few minutes ago, and says on the authority of the word of God, I can say to you in Christ, your sins are forgiven. That is the pronouncement of liberty over you. And you need to hear it. Having been justified by faith in Christ, the Christian has been set free from bondage to Satan and the power of sin. You say, I don't feel very free. That's why you need to hear the words of liberty proclaimed over you time and time again. But Christian liberty, just like any true liberty, and just a moment's reflection proves this. I mean, we have to do it all the time, but we know this is true. 
Christian liberty, like any other true liberty, does not mean that you are now severed from any responsibility you have toward anyone else. That you are now free to just do whatever you want. Just a moment's reflection will demonstrate that that's no freedom. Christian liberty does mean, however, that you really are free. You you are so free that God has opened up to you the splendors of his created world with the intention that you enjoy it. God is not stingy. Just take a look. Just open your eyes at the amazing world that God made and put you in it. 1 Timothy 4.4 says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's Christian liberty. (laughs) Everything created by God is good. You need to hear this. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. We need more joyful Christians with their eyes open to the wonders of the world that God has made and saying, Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God, for this. This is delightful. So maybe you should do that this week. Maybe you should just have a little bit more joy in the wonders of the world that God has made. Some of you should just smile a little bit more when you see it or taste it. Can you give thanks for it as a gift from God? That's liberty. That's liberty. And yes, by the way, this is a change from the restrictive restrictive food laws of the Old Testament. But it's not because God has now changed his mind on such matters. Oh, how many people struggle to understand their Old Testament because, well, see, God just changed his mind. We don't know how to read our Bibles. It's because the new covenant has been inaugurated. It's because the kingdom of God has broken in that the people of God are no longer distinguished by the distinctives of one particular cultural expression. But at the same time, if we're going to enjoy this liberty that God has given to us, then we've got to be clear about the greater purpose that stands behind the liberty that Christ died to give us. The purpose that I'm referring to could be stated negatively as in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. In other words, if you understand the purpose of Christian liberty, you don't say, so what about my brothers or sisters? I'm enjoying my freedom. A comment like that betrays you aren't as free as you thought. Because God did not give you your liberty to cause pain to another, but to serve the good of another. 
As Paul says in Galatians 5.13, that great epistle of liberty. Here's what he says. You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You were called to freedom. But do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Point is clear, and this is the power that you and I have been given to fulfill our duty. The freedom that God has given us in Christ is not a freedom for personal self-indulgence, but for the flourishing of everyone who is a citizen of the kingdom of God. You know you're heading off the path of freedom that is yours in Christ when your so-called freedom in Christ damages another Christian. So that's why, again, going back to verse 13, Paul says, let's make this determined. Let's make this judgment. Can we do this together? Can we agree together that we are going never, never, never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a spiritual brother or sister? But if we're going to fulfill this obligation, we're going to have to be clear about what it is we are here called to avoid at all costs. You see, the problem here is that we are sometimes told that a stumbling block is something that we do that another Christian does not approve of, something that another Christian is offended by. We even use the word offended. And because verse 15 speaks about a person being grieved by what you eat, it's easy to conclude that we are here told Never to do anything which another Christian might say you shouldn't do. Now, just think with me. If that was what Paul meant here, then love and liberty would come into such frequent conflict that it's difficult to imagine what liberties would be left for you to enjoy. It's important to note then that the word, the verb grieved in verse 15 can also mean to injure or to damage. And by the way, the other words that are used in this passage to describe the hurt that the strong might cause the weak show that the concern that should cause us to put some kind of curb on what we would call a liberty is far more serious than just doing something that that other Christian frowns upon. The concern here in verse 15 is not simply you would do something another Christian would say, I don't know about that. Look what it says. Look what the concern is in verse 15. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. You You better watch this. The verb destroy in the New Testament usually means the opposite of salvation and eternal life. The concern is that, not that we might do something another Christian doesn't like. The concern is that we might do something which results in another Christian being eternally lost. Any eyebrows raised? (laughs) 
how does Romans 14.15 fit with a theology of the eternal security of the believer? You're going to have to wrestle with that one. I mean, unless you want to just stay another hour. Oh, is that an invitation? But here's what we often do. We often run past a verse like that or dismiss it or lessen the potential damage that could be caused because of our theology working in a different way and not simply let Paul's point be Paul's point here. His concern, the concern of this passage is that we do not exercise our liberties in a, ways that, in a way that brings death rather than life. We must, we are called here to restrain, is that the right word? Restrain our liberties, not when someone might be annoyed by them, but when someone might be destroyed by them. So before we get into some examples of what, how we, st- <laughs> How do we apply this passage then in our day? I want you to notice what, you're, what we're told in verses 16 to 18. Look what it says. Christian, we must never allow our good to be spoken of as evil. What is this good? It's not just the freedom that we have in Christ. It is the whole gospel itself. The message of what God has done is doing, and will do for our salvation. And that's why in verse 17, he speaks of the kingdom of God. It's rare for Paul to use the phrase, the kingdom of God. He does it right here in verse 17. It's because the good news of the kingdom is what we must not let the unbelieving world revile by our willingness to destroy one another by something as trivial as the kind of food we choose to eat. It's by our love for one another, Jesus said, that the world will know we are his disciples, not by the indiscriminate insistence on our liberties. So rather than eating and drinking, we must emphasize righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Spirit. These are the indications that the kingdom of God has dawned. These three words, by the way, remind us of the new creation reign of grace from Romans 5. Having been justified by grace, Paul says, we have peace with God. More than that, we rejoice even in our sufferings. Righteousness, that is justification. Peace, joy. These are the realities of the kingdom of God. And now that in Christ the reign of sin has come to an end, the most important realities for us are not food and drink, but the far greater delights of righteousness, peace, and joy that are ours through the Holy Spirit who's been given to all of us. And when those things are emphasized, even if at the expense of the lesser liberties, verse 18 says, not only will God be pleased, But even that kind of behavior usually is well-received by the world, by people in general. It was said of both Samuel in the Old Testament and of Jesus in the New that they had favor with God and men. 
It's an indication of the power of the Holy Spirit and the arrival of the kingdom of God. And it's the power of Christian liberty that enables us to fulfill our duty, duty to one another. You see, they're not in contradiction. They're not in contradiction. You've been set free to serve one another. So now lastly, what is the way to apply the power of Christian liberty? This power that we have through the Holy Spirit and thereby to, to, to aim toward, to see progress in our duty, fulfilling our duty, duty to one another. Verse 19 indicates that Paul wants to move now to a practical application of this responsibility. How do, how do we serve one another? How do we help one another strong and weak together in the church? Here's what he says. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Peace. It's what the kingdom of God is all about. We just saw verse 17. More specifically, it's this peace that leads to mutual upbuilding. This is a frequent expression in the New Testament for spiritually strengthening one another. That's your duty. You've come here today not simply to receive, though yes, to receive. But the reason it matters you show up is because we need strength. A strength that comes from one another. You and I as Christians are to apply the power of the liberty that the Holy Spirit has given you to fortify your brother or sister in the faith. It's why it matters that you just simply show up. So we can't do it by ourselves. Of course, it means then that we have to avoid at all costs doing exactly the opposite, right? If we're going to build up one another, we better do everything we can not to tear each other down. Verse 20 says, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. We are reminded right here what's at stake. The coming of Messiah indicates again, do we get this? That God's long-awaited kingdom has been established on earth. Wake up, Christian. Know the time in which you live. And one of the things that this means is that the new and final long-promised temple of God has come, is being built. Jesus, when he was here, of course, raised plenty of eyebrows when he claimed that he was the temple. And the New Testament explains that all those who belong to Jesus, listen to what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 2 5, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Are you, are you tracking with me here? Do you see what's happening in the new covenant? What is the work of God we must not destroy? And the answer is you can see it in the part as well as in the whole. It is, of course, 
the work of God. Do not destroy your brother or sister. It's the individual Christian. At the same time, it is the temple that together Christians are being joined in for the glory of God. In our day, at least in our particular time and place and culture, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but bear with me. It's the undervaluing of the church. Even this undervaluing that's sometimes excused because of the many problems that are still found right within us. This is not what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. This is the reason why here at Crosstown we unashamedly call everyone who professes faith in Christ to be committed to a church. That's why we do it. We unashamedly say, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you must be committed to his people. Because This is what is happening in the new covenant. The new temple, Jesus has come, and his temple is being shaped and formed by his people being united together. We must not destroy God's work for something as relatively minor as food, Paul says. And then in verse 20, he goes on to say, again, it's certainly true that all foods are clean, and in the sense previously explained, in the sense previously explained. But look what he says now. It's wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Therefore, verse 21 says, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, these verses and the principle that Paul has laid out here is easy to understand, but we've got to be careful in how we apply it. It does not mean, as we've already argued, that you have to keep secret your Christian liberties or that anything another Christian could possibly disapprove of is now off limits. To cause another Christian to stumble means to cause them to lose faith in Christ and be destroyed, not to cause them to question your faith in Christ. And every legalist does not understand that. Don't read Romans 14 and say, well, my brother or sister doesn't approve of that. They question my faith when I exercise that liberty, so I guess I can't do it. That's reading it completely wrongly. It's a common misapplication of Romans 14, and I'll be honest with you. As a recovering legalist, it annoys me when I hear somebody say that. Well, somebody's offended. Offended? Like, They start to question my faith in Christ or like they start to question their own faith in Christ. Which offense are you talking about? There's a world of a difference between the two. Are you with me? So when we seek to apply Romans 14, I think here's the way forward for us, at least in our day. Let's not get hung up by trying to identify who's the strong, who are the weak. The point that is clear throughout this chapter is that we each do not come to spiritual maturity at the same speed. 
This is a process that takes time, and we are called to be patient with one another. It takes a lifetime to think through what it means to live in the reality of the new covenant and the kingdom of God and all that it is precisely that Jesus came to do. So we're going to need a lot of patience with one another. So what then are we supposed to do? We are to do all that we can to be at peace with all who profess faith in Christ. But the reason why it matters so much is because, look, it's only when Christians from all nations unite in worship of Jesus the Messiah that the message rings out loud and clear to the Caesars of the world that there is another king. The world's true king. Do not miss this point, brothers and sisters. If there is anyone who is indeed strong in the faith, it will be because he or she has grasped the reality of the kingdom of God and the rule of God's Messiah and a way of living in the world that can never be represented by the flag of any particular country on earth. To be blunt... Confusing the kingdom of God with any particular point in American history is perhaps the greatest weakness that many Christians in the United States simply cannot overcome. Let's help each other. Let's help each other. We live in a world, of course, consumed by the reality of the politics of our day. Christianity is not quiet about that. Christianity is loud about it. And loud in saying this, when we come together, united by the belief in one Lord, one King, that is the message that rings out to the Caesars of the world, there's another way. There is another way. So one final word. Verses 22 to 23 tell us that the goal for all of us is to grow in faith to come to understand what it is God is telling you to do and then to do it. (laughs) That's what it means to grow in the faith. It's not for us to go around and tell you what to do. It's for you to come to understand you've been given the Holy Spirit. So get with the Lord and communion with his people. Come to understand what it is God is telling you to do and how you're supposed to live in the new kingdom in the, in the kingdom of God, and then live accordingly. That is spiritual strength. To be confident that your life is being lived in conformity to what the Lord has commanded. By the way, verse 23 does not say that spiritual strength means you never have a doubt. Because <laughs> you're sitting here saying, man, I... I'm always, I'm not sure. Is this what the Lord wants? I have doubts. I'll never be strong. That's not what verse 23 says. It says to go against your conscience. To have a doubt, but then act anyway. That is what puts the weak in grave danger. So what we can do to build up one another is to help one another think through the implications of the gospel. And then put it into practice. 
even if it means that you and I come to different conclusions on matters that are not of primary importance, we will have advanced the values of the kingdom of God if we encourage one another not to conform to our standards, but to go live according to what you believe is true from the word of God. Even if that means that people who otherwise might join this church, we need to say you should join another church. Because of your convictions on this matter, we are advancing the kingdom of God when we do that. So let's be committed to do this for one another, most of all. Let's pray.